0: Welcome to episode 21 of Foreign Correspondents, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. First off, an important announcement. We are now an Australian podcast. We got shouted out on an Australian radio program called Saturday Extra on ABC Radio National just a couple weeks ago, and I was delighted to see that there are a lot of new Australian listeners, to the point that I think we have more Australians than Americans listening now. So welcome to all the Australians, and I hope you stick around. I'll hopefully be doing an episode with the Australian journalist who recommended us, so keep an eye out for that in a few weeks. If you have any feedback on the show, please reach out to me at foreignpod at gmail.com. And, you know, give it a rating or write a review for it on Apple Podcasts or wherever. Secondly, you'll notice that this episode is a decent amount longer than my usual episodes. Please consider it my special coronavirus episode for those of you, hopefully most of you if you're being responsible, who are stuck inside, self-isolating, and maybe have an extra 10 to 15 minutes in your life. If you have any thoughts on what the ideal episode length is, please also send me an email. Now, I bring you a very special episode this week with Paul Schrote, a freelance entertainment and culture journalist in Los Angeles, California. He tells us about some of the cataclysmic changes in journalism that he was on the front lines for when he got out of school. Digital journalism was still the Wild West, but was finally starting to overtake print journalism, with all the opportunities and clickbait that that brought. This episode is the podcast What Jackie Brown Is to Quentin Tarantino. This is my Hangout episode. We're old friends from college and drank and talked for three hours, ranging all over the place. But Paulo has managed to bring it back to some insight about the journalism profession, the nature of entertainment, or even the psychology of what drove us into journalism. He also has a knack for waxing poetically about obscure movies from the 90s. I will say I normally feel like an outsider in the media industry, off in whatever corner of the world I'm in. But talking to Paul, I feel like an insider. Yes, that does mean we're going to shamelessly name drop any number of other journalists. And for those of you who like entertainment, and who doesn't, you'll get to hear what it's like to interview celebrities. Okay, I could go on and on, but let's get to it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Paul Schroet, a freelance journalist in Los Angeles. Thanks again for doing the podcast. Thank you, Jake. If we could start with, could you tell me a little bit about what kind of work week you've had and also a bit of where you are? Set the scene, I guess, is a good way to say it.
1: I'm in L.A. at 7.07 p.m. It's the end of the week, although since I'm like a freelance journalist, it feels like I'm kind of always working in some capacity. It's been a fairly low-key week, except I was kind of rushing over the weekend and the beginning of this week to meet these deadlines for a bigger package that Money Magazine runs every year that is their best in travel. So this is best in travel 2020. And so I helped them with the reporting and writing of that package. So it was just racing to meet that big deadline on Monday. And then since then, it's just been chipping away at various things.
0: Yeah. And I saw you had that piece come out in LA Weekly, was
1: it? Los Angeles Magazine. LA Magazine. Los Angeles. Yes. I just had a piece. I mean, it feels like I worked in that piece in December. It's been gestating for while but it's out in the march issue the headline is rise of the soccer wives but it's about what are known as a quote-unquote wags wives and girlfriends which is a huge thing in soccer especially european soccer but it's about the wives and girlfriends specifically of the two mls teams in la the galaxy and then the newer lafc which was a higher scoring team in the last mls season
0: pretty cool is there beef between the wags of the two teams
1: I wish there was more beef because it would have made a better article. <laughs> you know, in, in British soccer or football, if you will, the tabloids are consumed with the wags and there's more of that cattiness whether it's genuine or generated by tabloids. I haven't seen any real competition between the various wives, but the wives are interesting of, of themselves. One of the wags, she's actually a girlfriend of a player, is Becky G, who is a Mexican-American pop star who's very, very famous in her own rights. And, you know, there's other wags that are models and such. So, yeah, it was kind of just like going through the notable wags. Cool. However, I will say, just as an aside, there's an intense and fascinating and delicious rivalry between Galaxy and LAFC. LAFC being the sort of upstart, newer team that has become much better than Galaxy. And in LA, there's what's known as El Trafico, literally the traffic, but it's the term to refer to the rivalry between the two teams who play in different parts of LA. So it's kind of a humorous nod to the the traffic that spans All of LA, but between the two stadiums, too.
0: <laughs> okay, cool. So getting off to maybe a little bit of a slow start because it's so late, but I'm drinking, so we'll get better.
1: Yes, I'm um, drinking too, I should say. Although a lot of that has to do with because I get nervous doing these sorts of things. But
0: <laughs> If we could start by just talking a little bit about where you were born, what growing up was like for you, and maybe a little bit about your family, like what your parents did.
1: So it's funny because I, I live now in LA, but I was actually born in LA in Woodland Hills. Then when I was one year old, my family moved to Miami, Florida, which is where I grew up. That's where I lived until college. So my parents met both working in retail. Specifically, they worked for a department store that was known as Bullock's that then was bought by Macy's. Anyway, they ended up moving to Miami because my dad got a much better job working for a regional branch of Macy's that used to be known as Burdines. My mom eventually stopped working and was a stay-at-home mom. My dad continued in retail working on the finance side. And so I don't exactly know how I ended up in journalism. <laughs> so I grew up with one brother who's five years older than me, four and a half. Growing up in Miami was just an interesting experience because Miami is, in many ways, unlike the rest of the United States. It's extremely international. White people are a numerical minority in Miami-Dade County, I believe, still. And being this white kid in this very international city was just a really interesting experience. Leaving Miami, I went to college with you at Northwestern University outside of Chicago, and I was like, oh, this is what the rest of America is like. But Miami is just a really interesting place because so many people who live in Miami, whether they're from the U.S. or from abroad are not actually from Miami. It's just a very transient city and you get in flavors of all different kinds of cultures. So that was always really interesting to me as a young kid. I was just always maybe a little bit of like a spacey kid and always kind of off of my own world and eventually turned to writing and eventually journalism as kind of an outlet for me.
0: Yeah, I've gotten to know Miami a bit because it's the only direct flight to the U.S. from Brasilia. Makes sense. There's a lot of Brazilians, a lot of South
1: Americans moved to Miami. It's not just Cubans.
0: Yeah, like (laughs) if you're somebody who's made it as a Brazilian, you'll get an apartment in Miami. Yes. And did you go to public schools? Were they big, small? What was that like?
1: I went to all public schools until
0: college.
1: In different areas, my family started in Coconut Grove which is a beautiful neighborhood in the city of Miami by the bay. You know, on the other side of the bay is like Miami Beach. So that's where I went for elementary school. And then eventually my family moved to Pinecrest, which is more of like a suburb within Miami-Dade County. It's its own city. Finished public elementary school there and then went to middle and high school there. And they were all, I think, fairly on the larger side. I mean, it was a very nice public school in Pinecrest in Miami, but it was several thousand kids. And that's actually where I started doing journalism. I just signed up for the intro journalism course, which was the feeder into if you then wanted to do high school newspaper or yearbook, or there was actually a quote unquote TV station that did the morning announcements on TV by students, which was fun. So that was kind of the feeder into those things. And I ended up going into newspaper and just really loved it. And that shaped me as a student. And then also as a high school kid, what the fuck do I want to do? So I don't know if I can swear on this, but what do I want to do with my life? And that kind of directed me a little bit in both ways.
0: Yeah, you can definitely swear on this. Oh, I have the blanket explicit tag and I probably don't use it enough. It's just so I don't have to think too hard about did Did we swear in this episode? I can't remember.
1: Yeah, I swear a lot. So I'll earn the explicit tag.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. So it was one of those deals where the school newspaper was a uh, class, not an extracurricular. So you would take the class every every semester or something like that? Yeah, it was
1: literally an elective course. So yeah, it was the class, which was an interesting setup. It was a very robust journalism program at that school. I don't know if it still is. Sadly, I think a lot of it was owed to, shout out to Miss Shirley Askin, who goes by Yak to her students. But uh, <laughs> she had been there for decades. She was a former journalist at a paper that no longer exists in Miami, and then ended up being the journalism teacher advisor at Miami Palmetto Senior High, where I went to high school. And she oversaw all of that and was very rigorous and created it into this robust and also beloved program. I took the journalism elective class freshman year. I did newspaper sophomore through senior year.
0: What do you think you liked so much about it?
1: I liked it because it sort of kicked my ass. I was kind of a little aimless as a kid. I was very interested in pop culture and I was drawn to words and to actually to magazines for a long time, which is the kind of journalism I like doing the most is magazine journalism. I was kind of really a tech nerd also as a kid. I would just build websites, starting with like little Geocities websites Shout out to GeoCities at the turn of the millennium, but then also building proper websites with like HTML and CSS and stuff. I was kind of like creative, but I was off in my own world doing a bunch of stuff, and I wasn't rigorous as a student by any means. And I felt a little disconnected and sort of disaffected by a lot of the classes I took as a kid and I just I just didn't connect really to a lot of it and then when I took the journalism class I did it on a lark because I was interested in words and some way I felt like I was okay at that I could do that fairly well work with words writing and then ended up just falling in love with journalism because frankly it exposed me to a lot more people it forced me to talk to people in a way that I wasn't doing I was off kind of in my own world a lot and I ended up loving them. Like, I got this huge rush out of interviewing someone and getting them to open up to me about their perspective in the world and also their own expertise and way of seeing the world in a way I couldn't. So that was all very attractive to me. And then because I ended up really going gung-ho on that it also kind of inspired me to just in general put a little bit more of myself into all of my school work including English class where I didn't always connect with all the novels that we were being told we must read and that were masterpieces or whatever but also it made me more interested in statistics and I took AP statistics at my high school and loved that so it kind of gave me a kick in the ass to be a little bit more of like a serious student I guess
0: wow ap statistics
1: Uh, love statistics (laughs) well statistics right is like applied math journalists by nature love statistics because it helps us do our jobs but i just ended up falling in love with everything about statistics just like working with data sets that are about real people and their incomes or their public opinions or things like that so yeah statistics fun
0: You're flouting all sorts of magazine writer stereotypes. I would expect to hear that from the financial journalist or something like
1: that. Oh, but no, 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 no. I think the best magazine writing marshals facts in order to create this argument or a specific picture of the world. All the best magazine writing, I mean I think the best New Yorker pieces are ones that are have very colorful anecdotes, but they also just marshal facts in an interesting way. And statistics is one of those things where there's this great book that my dad actually, my dad's a huge like math nerd in general. He worked in finance for a lot of his life, but he turned me onto this book when I was taking statistics called How to Lie with Statistics. And one of the most interesting things about journalism is that a lot of people don't understand multiple regression or other statistical elements or what a p-value is, right, which helps us understand how something is statistically significant. But journalists are in this prime position to explain to readers how statistics work and whether they're significant. But the problem is, is it's so easy to sort of lie with statistics or at least cast this portrait that's not really very accurate. The best magazine writing included is able to translate that, but translate that hopefully in a way that's like, faithful to the actual numbers and to the data and not just kind of fudging it to make an argument that's not held up by the
0: stats. I mean, I love statistics. I look at a lot of statistics for my job and I love looking at spreadsheets. Yeah. But I, I took statistics in college and it's the one class I will say that I skipped probably at least 50% of the classes. Well, Somehow still passed it. And I could not tell you what a p-value is or uh, I can't do linear reg- I mean, I know what they are kind of, but
1: yes. I- I mean, if you brush up on it again, it's really not as hard as it all sounds. So I was a sociology double major in addition to being a journalism major. So I had to take a lot of statistics and also use statistics and did like a senior thesis that involved quite a lot of multiple regression and
0: data sets and things. Yeah, for me, I mean, I was a reformed math major. I took math for a year and a half and then was like, I don't want to do this. And I switched to (laughs) econ and history. And then I went abroad and that just screwed up all my credits. So I had started kind of like half an econ major and didn't get anywhere. What else was I going to say? Oh, the other thing that connected with me was this kind of, you know, mission driven journalism thing where I was a very shy kid, but something about journalism and having an excuse, having the mission that you've got to go talk to someone really did help me get over i guess interacting with people and i mean i start to internalize it over time but still if you throw me in a huge event and i'm just supposed to be there and not be a journalist i often don't really know what to do with myself
1: Um, yeah Yeah, that's um, exactly how i felt i felt like i was happy being in my own world on the computer listening to my favorite 90s hip-hop albums and such, and just being off in my own world. Even though I did want to talk to people, I think it made it hard for me. I had sort of trouble, I think, before getting into journalism, just talking to someone in a room I had never met before, right? Just like going up to them. But it was kind of a rush just talking to people. Also, just because then I understood that people love to talk, not just about themselves, because that makes people sound sort of conceited or something, which they can be, but also like people Want to share their stories. It's just like a natural human instinct. And I sort of loved getting that. Like, I loved hearing people's stories. And so that kind of helped me. And I don't think many people would describe me as shy now, but I definitely was. And that kind of reoriented me a little bit and made me feel like, oh, like I want to put myself out there in the world, if nothing else, so that I can get these great stories from people. I, th- I feel like I remember also in college, like there were quite a few people going into journalism who just couldn't get over that fear of cold calling someone or man on the street interviews where you just go up to someone, which can be frightening and uncomfortable, but can also be really like fruitful and fun, I think. So anyway, for whatever reason, I became very attracted to that.
0: Yeah, I spent my fair share of time standing in a Kmart parking lot asking people about random stuff at my first job. You eventually get over it. But you must have applied straight away to Northwestern journalism School. So You must have been taking it pretty seriously in high school. I mean, had people from your school gone to Northwestern before? Were you really driven and dead set on journalism already at that point? Or what brought you to Northwestern?
1: I don't know if it was so much that I was dead set on journalism so much as it was the one thing I discovered in school where I was like, oh, I am accepted and maybe even embraced for this one thing, and I seem to be doing pretty well at it. I was a high B student overall, and I but I struggled a lot in classes, and it just made me feel like it was a world where I could get around and where I... Felt like I was sort of thriving. And so also I just loved it. So I just I applied to pretty much only to journalism programs, including Northwestern, which was kind of known as the number one, whatever that means, journalism program. Yeah, I also applied to Mizzou's journalism program, USC, UT Austin, a couple other places. Yeah, actually, my high school, Palmetto Senior High, it was, I wouldn't say like necessarily a feeding school, but it was, I think pretty much every year, there was at least one kid who would go to Northwestern. And there were several who had been accepted into the journalism school. Shirley Yaskin, yeah, who I mentioned earlier, the journalism advisor at Palmetto then also became kind of a mentor and a college applications advisor sort of figure for me as well. She and I bonded really closely. She urged me to apply early decision to Northwestern for the journalism school, Medill. And I shied away from that because I wanted to keep my options open. And I was sort of terrified of Northwestern because it seemed very academically rigorous. And also I would think I was just sure that I would be rejected. So I, d- I didn't apply early decision, but I did apply regular And then I was put on the wait list. Yeah, and then I was accepted off the wait list at Medill at Northwestern. And actually Dagny Salas, who you know, who was just visiting me in LA. Shout out Dagny. She now works for the New York Times. But she and I knew each other in high school and became friends because we were both on the newspaper. But she was a year above me and she went to Northwestern for journalism the year before me. And so when I got into Northwestern off the wait list, I had never visited the campus. I think I asked her, I was like, can I just fly out there? and stay in your dorm room and like check out Northwestern. And she said yes. And then I hung out there and just, I mean, I was probably going to say yes anyway, but ended up just like loving the environment and thought it was like a really actually fun school, more fun than I thought it would be. And then ended up, yeah, going to Northwestern.
0: Yeah, I know Dagny from my freshman year in the, the CRC, the Communications Residential College, which mm-hmm. explains why you then ended up living there, maybe. Exactly.
1: There. Dagny lived in CRC, the residential college, which I thought, oh my God, this is so deeply nerdy. Like it's a bunch of journalism students, some theater kids, film kids, and a smattering of other people. But I ended up actually having so much fun there and did a, then a, applied and lived in CRC for that reason.
0: Yeah, CRC was a great time, and so you. Oh, such a that... great
1: time! All those nerdy journalism and film kids like know how to party, like for real.
0: <laughs> and so, yeah, that's where we met. I was a sophomore, you were a freshman, yes. and class, yeah, yeah. And I just remember you were Ryan, my friend Ryan, who lives in LA now and is a director. Do you guys see each other much? Yeah, he's.
1: One of, like, my two best friends out in L.A., Ryan Gallagher. His director name is Ryan Patrick. You can go to (laughs) ryanpatrick.us. I'm, like, plugging Ryan now. But he is a director of commercials, music videos, and is working on other things. He did a short film that was sort of an unofficial Gremlins sequel. Anyway, yeah, Ryan was my year and I think you guys were in Sigma Chi together.
0: Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah, I joined my sophomore year. So and yeah, his freshman year.
1: But yeah, I became good friends with Ryan in college and still hang out with them a lot. Yeah.
0: So how did you find Northwestern overall now that we're like 10 years out from it? I loved
1: it. I mean, I wouldn't want to do
0: college again. But
1: it's hard. I you know I didn't go to any other college, so I, I can only guess at what my experience would have been like if I had gone to USC or UT Austin or Mizzou or something like that. But I just thought it was so fun. I mean, I loved even beyond the journalism program, and I actually did have quibbles with the journalism school, and I'm not sure Madill was my biggest fan for a few reasons, but. The best thing about that school is you just get a lot of kids who are really passionate about journalism, who like really want to do it. And then you also just get some teachers who are phenomenal, who are former or even current journalists, like Charles Whitaker, who's now the dean, who was my magazine editing professor and kind of a mentor to me. So that culture was just really great to be a part of. And then Northwestern itself is just, I think, a wonderful environment. It's a beautiful campus and it is a college campus proper. It's not like a city sort of campus. And yet you are off the L train. Chicago is very easily accessible. There's another campus for many of the grad school programs downtown. You can take a shuttle there for free. I mean, I spent a lot of time in Chicago, but also like the college itself, students take their studies seriously. It has an incredible faculty obviously a huge ton of resources it also costs a lot of money to go there it's a very fun place to be I mean I think you connect with a lot of students from different parts of the country and also different parts of the world and people have fun I mean it's just a really fun environment it's the kind of place where especially for me I think if you felt a little adrift in high school you know I had my friends and like the, the whole journalism crew or whatever But if you felt a little adrift, it was a great place to just connect with lots of different people. I mean, I remember becoming sort of casual friends with someone on the baseball team and just random ass people, you know, frat kids, but also like theater kids who would annoyingly like sing very early in the morning because they were going to audition or whatever. So it was just like a really cool environment to meet a lot of people
0: with different passions who also had fun. Yeah, no, that sounds a lot like what my experience was like of it. Because, yeah, I always had, like, three different friend groups at least.
1: I feel like that's, like, the ideal atmosphere. I wouldn't have just wanted to, like, just be around other journalism kids or something. Because part of being a journalist also is figuring out the world and getting a bunch of different sides of the world. I thought it was very idyllic in that way.
0: Just to talk a little bit about journalism school. You said you had some quibbles. Would you endorse going to school to get a journalism
1: degree? If you are very serious serious about pursuing journalism, I do encourage you to apply to Medill and possibly even go there. I think there are other phenomenal journalism programs out there. You know, I know someone from high school who went to Mizzou's journalism program, Jordan Sargent, he's a music journalist now. He's written and worked at spin pitchfork other places he's a phenomenal journalist we were on the high school newspaper together i've heard amazing things about other journalism programs you by no means have to go to medill i think it's a great environment just because there is this community of kids who are very passionate about this thing who will end up in the industry and then professors also who have been or are in the industry all of whom can be guiding lights or connections to be very just like basic about it, like everyone needs to network even in college, especially if you're pursuing journalism, which unfortunately, I think tends to be very like who you know, industry even above other industries. And so I think for that reason, it's great. I'm sure you remember when I came into Medill, the year after you started, there was a lot shifting, you could feel the ground shifting at Medill, like courses were being rebranded, there was this emphasis on the future of journalism, sort of not just web journalism, but Multimedia journalism. You should know how to do all of this, except the execution, especially as someone who, you know, I worked on North by Northwestern, which was kind of like a startup campus journalism website, northbythenorthwestern.com, which is still around, I believe. You know, I worked on that heavily with Tom Sharadi Conan, now at the New York Times, who started it, and I helped him with some of the tech and design stuff. But it just felt like when I would go into those classes and they'd be like, here's how to use a web camera, I was like, wow, like I could teach these skills a lot better. (laughs) It was very, (laughs) half-assed. It was very half-assed, the attempt. It was almost like intellectually dishonest, the way where they were like, this is the future of journalism, but all the people teaching it didn't know shit about the future of journalism. They didn't know basic applied skills in the way you should to really teach those kinds of things. So it's almost like, I would have almost preferred that they teach me the old school journalism, so that I could then take that wisdom and apply it to what was rapidly becoming the quote-unquote future of journalism. But there were also just amazing people like Charles Whitaker, Mick Dumkey, who was then part of the Chicago Reader, I don't know if he still is, who taught an investigative journalism course, and taught us the tools of journalism that, you know, not the journalism I really do so much because I do more like entertainment stuff, but it was really enlightening to learn how he does, he does political, city political journalism, learning how you really rigorously get into the paper trails that create really illuminating and ultimately effective civil journalism about how local governments work or don't work. So I think there was a lots of amazing stuff at Medill. And I would implore anyone who is serious about pursuing journalism, who is thinking of applying to journalism programs to apply to Medill. Having said that, some of the best journalists I know were not journalism majors. They didn't go to school for journalism. But I think Northwestern is also just an amazing place to get all kinds of academic experience and also just like life experience. I think it's, it's great for
0: all of that. I was actually never in Medill. I snuck in.
1: Oh, you were a Weinberg student, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I snuck into three well, you classes.
1: you hung out with all the journal kids.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I worked at the Daily. And yeah, 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 the Daily is where I basically learned most of the journalism yeah. stuff. I mean, the three classes I took, and I took you know, 101. one. Like, official.
1: Well, I don't know if it's official. It's the Daily newspaper of the Northwestern campus.
0: Right. I mean, the journalism classes, yeah, I took three. I took intro to the 101 class, which is fine. It's, you know, stuff you should go over. I took the business reporting class with Alec Klein, who is kind of a dysfunctional mentor to me and recently got me MeToo'd. Oh, uh, fun. And then I took, what was it, News and New Media, which was exactly what you were talking about. Like, it was with Chris Booker, who's a great guy, and I'm glad I took it because I got to know him. And he was a video journalist at the Chicago Tribune, and the video part was good. I learned some basics, but like we learned, like Adobe Flash, which is like <laughs> what the fuck which then dude?
1: became uh, became obsolete like the next year. Basically, I mean, even when I was in college, everyone knew that you were moving away from Flash. It's absurd the kinds of things they were teaching. I don't want to make this about me shitting on medill. and I'm sure they've gotten much better about the quote unquote new media, which is such a silly phrase.
0: So you graduate like I did one year after me, but still like things were screwed up. Like it was very difficult time to be thrown into the job market, much less the journalism job market. And I think actually, yeah, getting into the type of journalism you do, I would argue is actually harder than what I do. I mean, I know more people who do similar things to me, like Nomon and uh, a few other people who do, like, you know, kind of classical newspaper style. But I actually think going into
1: You make it sound like it's like easy, but I mean, I never really pursued newspapers per se. But I mean, I worked for an alt weekly newspaper, which is a totally different thing. It's, I think, more like magazine. I interned at the Chicago Reader, which is the alt weekly in Chicago. But I found news writing, even just trying to do it in like a classroom environment, I found it terrifying because. All you basically have are like facts and quotes and there's no room for I don't wanna say bullshit because I don't think magazine journalism is bullshitting. And also you have so little time. It's just like the idea of working for like an AP or a Reuters when things or like you know, what Dagney does at the New York Times, when things are moving that quickly, I think that's absolutely terrifying.
0: Yeah, that shit is intense, but I guess you you work your way up to it. But uh, so, yeah, there's one side of it, it's the work side of it. But like you said, also things were closing down. Let me put it this way. There's a less clear path into doing what you do i mm. think then for for newspapers i mean a lot of a lot of the people i know when the newspapers they had you know internships after every year and blah blah and kind of yeah. worked their way up i didn't do that but for you you graduate and like what are your options and what do you end up doing
1: well i was blessed by so many specific different circumstances one just having the financial support of parents where i could like do an unpaid summer internship which I think a lot of us did in order to pursue journalism. I was just pursuing internships nonstop, and Like where? So uh, my sophomore year while I was also a full-time student I interned part-time at the Chicago Reader uh, across the whole year just doing like a couple days a week and not even I think really like full days. They were pretty lax and awesome about that and again that's an alt-weekly I love the Chicago Reader and it's very in touch with like the local arts culture, and I wanted to do things about pop culture, about film and music. And so I would just help them, like, just go up there. I would take the inner campus shuttle and then walk over to the Reader Building, and I would just help them with any fact checking they needed. I mean, this is back in the days, I don't know if anyone still does this in newsprint, but you would publish the show times every week of different oh, movie theater yeah. showings. So I was the one who got the feed from all the theaters of what the next week's showtimes were going to be and had to plug them in for each theater and each movie. So it would do that <laughs> in their like old school database system that that would then get published. It would help them fact check. I mean, I was doing pretty lowly work. I think I also got to like write some blurbs for like, shopping listings or something like that, but that was kind of a great footing. And then because I wanted to pursue magazine journalism, obviously like magazine world is centered in new york and i came from miami you know there's always regional magazines chicago has chicago magazine but it just happened that my dad got another promotion within macy's both my parents are retired now but he got a promotion to work for macy's in the new york offices and so he took that job so my family ended up moving to new york city at the end of my sophomore year i was just hungry to apply to anywhere i mean I remember I got turned down for an internship at New York Magazine and like plenty of other places. I think the first magazine internship is always the hardest when you don't really have that experience. But Chicago Reader helped me a lot. And then I applied for what was then Radar Magazine. It ended up folding like a year or two later. And now it got sold and now it's RadarOnline.com. But it was like an actual serious, but also very fun pop culture politics magazine that was a monthly print magazine and online as well. And so I applied to that. And then because my dad had just moved out to New York, I went out there and interviewed there and then got that internship. I think I interviewed a few other places that I didn't get, but I got that internship. And then so I interned there. It was amazing. I mean, I loved that place. It was kind of like the wow, wow west of magazines. It was when like there was still quite a bit of money being thrown at these interesting print magazine projects, which no one really does anymore because they're very expensive. And obviously like the economy moved away from that. So I interned there and I just met all these people who had worked at Mademoiselle magazine or New York magazine, or just these different places, people I was interning for. So you just kind of like plug into that culture and then just sort of step stoned from there. So just having that home base with my parents in New York was then super beneficial. And then, you know, I mean, there are connections to be made in the magazine environment at Medill. Like this student who was a senior when I was a freshman during spring break, you could apply to do this Paris media seminar. So I did that and I met Brenda Ehrlich, who was not even a journalism student, but she went on that media seminar. And she was a senior, and she ended up interning for Esquire magazine and put me in touch with them. And I interviewed with them and couldn't end up doing the print internship because of scheduling or whatever, but ended up interning the summer after after junior year for their website, which was really cool. And I think made a lot of sense for me anyway, because like, you know, I did North by Northwestern and was much more into like the digital media side, also being like fairly techie. And com was like a tiny skeleton with like three people working on it at that time. And this was back in 2009 as an intern, just for the digital side of Esquire magazine, obviously then a very big, still very well-known magazine. But the digital side was where you could do a lot. Like I was just given a lot more ability to report and write and just play with different ideas even just art decisions like how things should be presented and so I did that this summer after junior year and I think it just ended up great going into that digital media environment especially for such a small digital team because then of course like so many magazines with small digital teams they ended up expanding even while they were slashing the print side they were expanding the digital side and it just worked out that right after I graduated college in 2010, they lost their digital editorial assistant role. And so they asked me if I would do it. It just worked out really well. I mean, I was living with my parents after graduation, interviewing for journalism jobs, not really hearing back. And then this was for a few months after graduation. And then the Esquire Digital people contacted me after they lost that person. So I took that job. And then as the site just expanded, I ended up taking on other roles and worked at Esquire Digital for five plus years.
0: So that's quite yeah, that's a substantial, substantial- chunk of time. I guess just were there any highlights of that time?
1: I mean, it was very exciting when I started there. It was very overwhelming. Esquire is one of those places, especially then it was very institutionalized and prestigious and had won a bunch of national magazine awards. And David Granger had been the editor-in-chief for years and years. I think he was editor-in-chief for over a decade, but he was there the whole time I was there. David Granger, by the way, is just a wonderful human. But when I started there, it was just, I couldn't have imagined a more intimidating place to work it's very quiet monthly magazine office and people are very well dressed because it's also like a men's fashion magazine so it was like incredibly intimidating but the highlights were it was actually great at the beginning while intimidating because we were just trying so many new things and expanding in digital and they trusted me a lot thought I had like the digital skills and some journalistic know-how so I ended up helping build out what became the culture blog. (laughs) This is when magazines still have quote-unquote blogs on their websites. (laughs) So I kind of helped build out the culture vertical on Esquire.com and got to edit Stephen Marsh, who was their culture columnist in print, but I edited him on the digital side. So I went from, like, digital EA to a web editor in a little over a year, just to have an editor role a year and a half in or whatever into this totally new first real journalism job. It was incredible. And it was such a gift because I really had so much latitude again, because the team was so small and expanding so quickly. So then kind of got to, in a lot of ways, spearhead how the pop culture entertainment coverage looked on the website and edited that stuff just because there was no one more senior who had the time to do that. I mean, I was reporting to, like, the site director, the guy who ran the website, who was busy with other things. Those early stages were a highlight. And then also a highlight was when that site director, Matt Sullivan, left. Who Matt Sullivan really, you know, in, in many ways gave me my career. So I thank him so much for that. But then he ended up leaving around the time of the 2012 presidential campaigns. And then this guy, Mike Nietzsche, came in as the new site director. And he came with a lot of experience. He came from the New York Times. I mean, he's just, he's brilliant. And he really is just an amazing manager. Like, he knows how to get the best out of people and push them, but also respect them, listen to them. And so he pushed me even more to build out that entertainment coverage under him for Esquire.com. And the entertainment section, like the amount of traffic we got, the amount of engagement, and just the quality of the stories we were doing just kept going up. So working under him was just amazing, because obviously, as you know, just having a great, brilliant boss who knows how to manage, who also just knows journalism inside and out, that was an amazing moment around... 2013-2014. 2013-2014. Yeah, those were some pretty exciting times. I mean, I ended up becoming like the entertainment editor for the website, which is the role I which I had for the last few years I was there. And also the other thing was just, even though it was so intimidating at first, I stayed at the website a lot longer than other people. Digital media, I think especially, had, tends to have a lot of turnover, or at least it did then anyway. And especially on such a small team, by the time I left, I had been there the longest on the website. But I got to know all the print people and and just like in those days, there was not enough cross-pollination between what the print people were doing and the digital people. But I think it was great just getting to know them as I got sort of them on on our side. And then I got to do some stuff for them in print. I wrote a couple different print pieces for Esquire and just getting to know their work also just was a wonderful highlight. And I had this, we called each other cubicle mates, but the woman who worked next to me, she had sort of a similar role on the print side doing culture stuff. We both started at the magazine at the same time, Anna Peel. And she's still, at least in the industry, one of my best friends. And she's just been an amazing person to powwow with. And she's also now a freelance writer. She ended up going to GQ to be a culture editor there and Is now a freelance writer reporter. But so those were the highlights, I guess, at Esquire.
0: Wow. Yeah. No, I had no idea that that's how that all went down. I mean, I had obviously seen you went there. I saw your job titles and things like that, but I had no idea about how, I mean, obviously it was a time of tremendous change.
1: Yeah, Esquire gave me my career essentially. And then as I said, I stayed there for five plus years and I get emotional about it only because it almost became like family, sometimes an amazing, just the best family ever and sometimes very dysfunctional. But, you know, especially as my first job and the start of my career and then staying there for that long in different positions and just forging deep connections with some people. It was a big deal for me.
0: So what made you decide to leave and where did you go next? At the time, I think this may still be true, but Hearst Digital
1: Media had a lot of turnover. There were different heads of Hearst Digital. I had in my five plus years at Esquire, the site director, the person at the head of just Esquire.com, I went through, let me count, one, two, three, I went through four different bosses in five plus years, which isn't crazy in media because there is, I feel like, a lot of turnover in media, but it always felt like Hearst Digital had like a new strategy and everything, and because I was a section editor, I had been there for five plus years, my next step would be becoming like the deputy editor for the website or something like that, which I wasn't really that keen on, especially because I felt like so much was shifting just in the strategy all the time in Hearst Digital. And I think it was necessary. It's necessary still in a lot of digital places, figuring out what the strategy is, because it's such a new terrain. But it became kind of exhausting. and I didn't feel like they were really necessarily looking for me to be a deputy editor for the website. And I also wasn't sure if that was really even the right fit for me or what I should be pursuing. And so I just started to look elsewhere. I also wanted to explore working for a place that was not a men's magazine or a men's property, like a men's interest publication, if you will, because that's all I had known since coming out of college. So I had this guy who had freelanced for me quite a bit as a like a film reporter, this guy, Jason Guaraccio, ended up getting a staff writer job at Business Insider and they were looking for a new entertainment desk editor at Business Insider which would entail managing like staff reporters. It was more of a managerial job whereas at Esquire I was editing people but I wasn't there to direct boss. I was editing mostly freelancers, basically all freelancers. So it was just a different job and it was Business Insider was from a digital standpoint a much bigger environment. It has an even larger staff now and different offshoots but it just felt like an interesting step in a different direction and they would teach me new skills. So I applied for that job, went through multiple interviews and ended up
0: taking that job and then I did that for almost two years. What was that like out of curiosity? Because Business Insider kind of came out of nowhere. It must have been a startup, I presume, uh-huh. and it, it ended up being a lot more than just business. And it seemed to just trying to, was it a buzzfeed model was it a mashable model i I was never (laughs) quite sure what its deal was and i had a one of my ex-girlfriends worked at the chinese version of business insider and it was just like an unbearable sweatshop there yeah Um, so I have no idea if that um, is any bearing on what it was like in the U.S. Well, I think the international
1: editions, because we had some insight into that, they were very low-staffed compared to the U.S. one. There was definitely some sweatshopness to the sort of churn of content because we were publishing so many stories. But those were interesting days for BI because just before I came on, they were a startup for several years and you're right, they had explosive growth but had kind of come out of nowhere, started by this sort of eccentric CEO and grew very quickly but just before I came on, they were bought by Axel Springer which is a German media conglomerate. So, I came in just after they were really a startup but also it had a lot of startup mentality still. The whole staff was still in place. But, you know, they were growing very quickly, had lots of people, you know, we were two floors in a large flat iron office where a lot of those more techy companies are in New York City. It was like free beer in the fridge and stuff like that. So it, it was kind of startup y. I just remember even when I was just interviewing there for the job, I just remember as soon as you walk into the waiting room, it's like this giant monitor showing chart beat of all the top stories at BI. And just looking at the sheer amount of traffic compared to what we were working with at Esquire.com or even, honestly, just across Hearst Digital, I was like, holy shit. Just the sheer number of articles and then also the massive reach of the ones that did hit the top of the site was kind of overwhelming. And then there's lots of brilliant people at BI, including people I worked with when I was there. And it taught me a lot also about being in a newsroom environment. I mean, BI was not like a traditional news publication, right? But it was a newsroom. It was editors shouting out things that had come across Twitter or the Bloomberg feed or whatever it's called. I mean, I was not doing any of the finance journalism. I was the entertainment editor. But it was a real, like, bustling, fast-paced make-it-happen-now kind of newsroom environment. It was also, I think, and this might be part of the sweatshop mentality, I mean, they were aiming for a similar kind of BuzzFeed, not necessarily style, but model, I guess, at that time, where it was just, how do we get as many eyeballs as possible? And I think while I was there, they were kind of moving away from that because it started to tarnish their brand, especially with advertisers, where it just, BI got branded, I think still is probably branded as sort of clickbait journalism, and we were even told to take it easy with some of the headlines that were clearly engineered just to draw people off of Facebook. This was also when Facebook was changing its algorithm, so that whole model was no longer working in the same way, where you could bring in a ton of people just through clickbait headlines on your Facebook feed. But it was tough. I mean, it was really fast-paced. I was in charge of a lot more. I was publishing more stories every day, but also just in charge of a lot more. I mean, I think I didn't realize how much just personnel stuff takes up your job and all your energy at work when you are someone's supervisor, when you have, like, direct reports who are concerned about the office environment, concerned about their salary and concerned about the future of their role and things like that and you're their point person and that all becomes very taxing it can also be very rewarding so it it was definitely a tough environment where a lot of new stuff was thrown at me you know we had very specific traffic goals we were the entertainment section so we were kind of sidelined at BI but as you say BI was also at an uncertain point where they were no longer really just business focused at all I mean they still aren't but now they have an offshoot what's called in Cider, which they had just started while I was there, which is more of their general audience publication. But we were kind of doing it all, but also trying to create this image of being like business focused. So I did come in with a plan i mean they tasked me with coming up with a plan for the entertainment coverage and for me it was i love stories for a general audience that are about the industry of entertainment i mean obviously the entertainment industry is a multi-billion dollar industry it's also an industry we all have a point of contact with because we all go to the movies or watch movies at home or watch tv shows or stream albums and stuff so it's so we all care about it deeply but i love stories that make things about the industry of entertainment very accessible to a broad audience. So I was kind of trying to work that angle, right? Things that are covered by Vanity Fair, Hollywood Reporter, like Billboard, The Trade Publications, but then doing them in in a fresh way that someone who reads BI, who doesn't know shit about the insides and outs of Hollywood will suddenly be like, oh, that's what happens. So I was kind of doing that. And then those were the most exciting stories to do. But then there was just a lot of just, we got to hit this news, we got to hit that news just to... To maintain the sort of massive traffic demand of the company. Yeah, wow,
0: it sounds very engaging but also possibly very stressful. <laughs> um. Honestly,
1: I would go to sleep and I would dream in headlines. Like, I would have dreams where I was just like in the CMS of BI. So, it was a lot of that. It was kind of non-stop and you know, it was Slack pings. We had night editors, which is very important at a, at a news organization like that, but I was getting Slack pings. And there's almost no way to just like distance yourself completely with it. I would be reading Slack messages through the night and stuff.
0: Is that why you left after two years or what led you to your next step? (laughs) Well, I just
1: want to say it was a lot and it was exhausting. And Anyone who has worked at BI, even who is still there, will tell you it's not for everybody. But there are brilliant people there. And I learned so much. One of the things about BI was because it was a startup initially, was they still had that mentality where, like, let's try a bunch of different things, and if it doesn't work, just lose it try a new thing, try another new thing. They wanted to try everything. And there was a lot of leeway in terms of that and figuring out and mapping out because entertainment was more of a sideline section, even though it got a lot of traffic because everyone clicks on stories about celebrities. I think any publication will tell you, even if you're the New York Times, headlines about celebrities and their lives will always just get outsized traffic. But they didn't have really like a clear roadmap of, okay, what does entertainment coverage for a place like Business Insider look like? So that was really exciting. And working with people above me, below me, the reporters I worked with, even just the interns we were hiring, there was so much talent there. And it was great to kind of just like shape something in a way that a startup will shape something with no sense of, oh, this is what BI has to be. While legacy publications always have those concerns, right? So it was kind of cool to shape that. But it was extremely, extremely taxing. It was just a lot of work. And part of why I did leave was just because I was so burnt out, especially after Esquire.com, too, like, building out these sections, and I had looked at Chartbeat so much over the past several years, including Esquire, I was just burnt out. And so I was no longer even really looking for a web editing job, especially at BI. I had no time to report or write. I mean, I would do one piece here and there every once in a blue moon, but I just missed interviewing. That's always been my favorite thing to do. Going back to what I was talking about, even in high school, just talking to people about their stories or their perspective or their expertise. That's my favorite thing, that I do. That's the thing I get the most adrenaline jolt out of. And I didn't get to do any of that anymore. And so I felt like at that point I had enough connections to go freelance and I really wanted to get into freelance reporting and writing. So that's what I decided. It didn't just all happen at once. I planted the seeds of that, took a bunch of meetings, saved a bunch of money to go freelance. Yeah, in like mid-2017, after almost a couple full years at BI, that's when I left, yeah, to go freelance.
0: Have you been freelance ever since then?
1: I'm I have. To remember. I have been freelance ever since, but I have done some daily editing work while freelance. So I did some full-time days helping out at Money Magazine, which I write for a lot. But there was a time when they needed some extra help editing and I would go into the office or work remotely doing full days editing there. And then towards like fall 2018 into like spring 2019, I worked full-time days doing digital editing for Men's Health, which is owned by Hearst now, where I used to work. Esquire is also Hearst. So I I have done some daily editing stints, but they've been on a freelance basis, but mostly just freelance reporting. So you've been freelancing for how long? For over two years now. I guess it's going to be three years in like July. How
0: have you found it so far?
1: Well, I've always been kind of crazy when it comes to time management, even when I had a full-time job. So that has only accelerated just because I'll get in my head and stuff and delay stuff. This is really unhealthy. I recommend people really get more structured and I try and do this all the time. But, you know, I'll end up just because I'm on deadline and I haven't done enough that day, I'll end up working late into the night. I do not recommend that. But it happens, especially when you have like a big deadline facing you. But I love freelancing for the most part. I mean, I think the other difficult part, you are your own boss. So, you you know, you need to be hard on yourself. But then you also just need to put yourself out there in a way I think it is scary to a lot of people. It's just something you just need to force yourself to do. Even editors you've worked with a bunch, you still just need to keep tabs on them, pitch them, ask them to do a quick call, to catch up on things. You just need to hustle. I mean, freelancing is you're self employed. You have to sell yourself. It's not like having a staff position in that sense. I actually don't mind that as much. You can sort of psych yourself out. Even with editors I've worked with before, I'll send an email and I don't get a response and I suck myself out like, oh, they don't want to work with me. It's almost never that they don't want to work with you. It's almost just like whatever that story idea was just doesn't work or they're super busy or they forgot. And I, I know that from being an editor who worked with a bunch of freelancers, especially at Esquire when I worked with almost all freelancers, just being on the editing side I think helped me understand that a lot more. So I don't really have as much trouble selling myself. I think the more unsettling thing is time management is very hard, at least for me, and I need to force myself to create strategies structure and do a certain number of hours every day of work but then also it can be a little scary when you're like one month you'll be like wow I have so many assignments like I'm making bank this month like I got like these five print stories that are gonna pay a dollar a word or maybe even two dollars a word and then also got all these other assignments that will pay pretty well for digital and also are super easy so you know you'll have a really good month and then the next month you're like wow I'm really dry on assignments this month or you know December rolls around everyone who works on staff is like taking holidays for a week or more. And so you're not getting any work, but also I don't get paid holidays, right? I make my own holidays. So I need to plan for all of that too. So you just need to be aware that some months are going to be better than others to you, just financially and just in terms of productivity. So those, I guess, are the hardest things, but I love freelancing. I love getting to write for GQ and then get to write for Money Magazine. I love getting to do some of these just straight up personal finance things like guides, where I learn a lot because, you know, I research them intensely. I just did a piece for Money Magazine explaining the differences between universal life insurance, whole life insurance, and term life insurance, and reporting that out and talking to personal finance experts. About that like I didn't know all that stuff I mean I knew what life insurance was basically I had it once upon a time now I know it was term life insurance and I know what makes that different from other kinds of life insurance but I love learning that stuff and also you know I wrote about like a horror streaming service I use for medium and just wrote an essay about how much I love it and what's awesome about it in this world of everyone streaming why it's cool to have this niche streaming service for horror fans like me so it's like getting that balance is like so fun to me and getting to report a lot but also getting to write the these, like, essays about things I'm passionate about. Like, I love that balance a lot. And also just working with a bunch of different people. I don't know. It's great when you work for one place and you love everyone you work with. But unfortunately, we don't all have the luxury of, like, always having everyone we work with always get on the best terms. So sometimes it's kind of nice to, like, put one foot into one publication, but then also do some stuff for another publication. And it just surrounds you. I don't know. It's just... It's more fun, I think. I learned more.
0: I dabbled in freelancing for a while and I, I felt like it is very nerve wracking. Yeah. And I felt like I had kind of gotten to the point where I was able to string together enough jobs and I was like, Oh, this is something I can do. I mean, I was like working for like a financial filings website, like yeah. and I was working for Women's Wear Daily, and I was doing like all this different shit. And it was cool. I mean, it was nerve wracking, like getting up and running. There were times Times where I got down to my last two hundred RMB, where I had to borrow money from friends and stuff. Yeah, but then you finally get up and running, and I I see how it could be cool. But then Reuters came along, and I don't know. It's always something. I, I see how it could be good, but at the same time, when that full time job came along, I yeah. I, had to do I that. mean,
1: by no means am I like, oh, I'm never going to go back into like a full time staff position. I would want it to be like slightly different from the kinds of online, very high churn, high traffic web editing positions I had before. But I feel like I'm still loving freelancing. And like what you were saying, like the first stage of it was, you know, I saved up a bunch of money. And then the first few months, I'm like, is there any way this is actually going to work? Like, do I need to be applying to like full time jobs? And then after a while, it's like, oh, okay, it's sort of working. And then it's like, oh, OK, like I can pay my bills like this is working. But now I'm kind of in that stage of like, I would like to make a little more money. I would like this to be like lucrative, which it's. it hasn't been like lucrative. You know, I would love to get to that stage or possibly go back into a staff job. But I kind of love the work, though.
0: And you've been doing great stuff. Um, Thank you. One thing I wanted to ask you is I feel like the type of journalism you do, there's a perception and maybe you almost need to perpetuate this perception at some times, but that your job is way more fun than doing other types of journalism, you know, newspaper journalism and things like that. Do you think that's actually the case? Is it more fun or is this glamorousness of it overblown or h- how do you feel about that for people who think it's like really fun it actually is
1: really fun like i love interviewing celebrities so much it's one of my favorite things but also like if you think it's just fun like you've never interviewed mick jagger because that motherfucker will rip you into shreds and make you feel just like an ant. so some of those celebrities are not like cakewalks to interview um the very good entertainment reporting i'm not gonna shade any publications but like there's some Some very bad celebrity interviews sort of cover stories or even little glossy, vaguely gossipy, which there can be good gossip reporting, by the way. Places like people have done like rigorously reported gossip reporting for a very long time. But like there's a lot of just kind of like fluffy nonsense kind of like entertainment celebrity journalism. But then there's like really solid breaking entertainment journalism. And some of it is celebrity focused. I mean, you could argue that that I believe Katie Weaver did the GQ cover story interviewing Kim Kardashian, in which Kim Kardashian basically started that whole narrative about how Taylor Swift had talked to Kanye on, the, on a phone call about his song, Famous, in which she talks about Taylor Swift, and she came out against that. Anyway, it was the GQ story that kind of broke. I mean, that's actual reporting. It's reporting that created the whole groundwork for a celebrity feud that actually has like real industry, like market implications. It is material to Taylor Swift's output and her success and her persona, and same with Kanye West, and same with Kim Kardashian West. So there's that kind of stuff, but there's also stuff that really exposes a lot about what's happening inside of the entertainment industry I mean obviously we saw with like Me Too but even other stuff that's like the Hollywood Reporter I think one of the traits it was either Variety or Hollywood Reporter who did just amazing reporting about this sort of shit show of Apple's new original content that they're creating and how they are throwing millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars at content without really knowing exactly what they're doing or what they're going for and things are getting squashed really quickly and that has been a whole mess I mean that again reporting like that exposes a real something that's important to Apple's investors. So I mean, I think entertainment reporting can be really fun, but it can also be really substantial to the way not just we consume entertainment, but the way it's made and how it gets sold.
0: Just out of curiosity, I'm curious what celebrities you've interviewed, if you could just give me a sampling.
1: (laughs) So I think I joke that my niche in celebrity interviewing is interviewing very, very famous people who are old enough I don't like no shade. I'm just saying like, you know, older in their career where they kind of don't give a fuck. (laughs) But so the most notable interviews, I interviewed Mick Jagger when he was a producer on the vinyl HBO series that only lasted one season, RIP. I interviewed Sharon Stone when she was on an HBO Steven Soderbergh show. I have interviewed the most amazing people ever who are Stephen Colbert and Amy Sedaris and Paul D'Anello. I interviewed him, was it... 2018. But I interviewed the three of them. I mean, Stephen Colbert, obviously, now known for being on Late Night and everything, but the three of them, Colbert, Sedaris, Danello, created and starred in Strangers with Candy, this much-beloved cult Comedy Central show from the turn of the millennium. Started, I think, in, like, 1999. And GQ had me do for their comedy issue. It's like a two-page spread, a mini-oral history of that show. And so I got to talk to all of them. Stephen Colbert was probably the most nervous I've ever been doing an interview. It was amazing. He's incredible. I also interviewed Jay Leno. And then I've interviewed a bunch of lesser known younger people. I interviewed Aisha Tyler, who's lovely. I interviewed Killer Mike. So yeah, just a different broad swath of celebrities.
0: Very cool, though. So, I guess let's get into some stories. Pick a story you're proud of and walk us through from start to finish, from getting the idea to reporting it out to writing it to publishing the whole deal. This is a newer
1: piece that I did. It was published on GQ.com at the end of last year. I've had an amazing time working on the articles I've worked on with GQ editors. They've given me the license to do some of these more ambitious, reported features that I love doing. The piece- I did for GQ is for their culture section, the headline is you can't stream your favorite movie anywhere. And then the subhead is here's why and what you can do about it. So this felt particularly relevant to me, just my own personal life. We were talking about Ryan earlier, Ryan Gallagher, who's a director in LA. But we're both sort of obsessive about the things we watch and especially older things. I still have a whole huge booklet of DVDs that I watch, but he's sort of like, ew, why would you watch a DVD like so low res. I'm like, well, it's perfectly watchable. <laughs> he loves only watching things in high def, which, you know, respect. We were both talking about movies we loved, especially as kids. We're like in our 30s now, things from the 80s or 90s, whatever, that we just, without buying a used DVD on Amazon, there's essentially no way to view what were like fairly popular and definitely very, in their time, accessible movies to watch. The one he was harping on was Cocoon which is a Ron Howard movie from the 80s that was a huge movie. I think it was in the top 10 of the domestic box office for that year. And I was harping on a much lesser known, but to me, beloved movie from the 90s. It's this 1999, very black comedy sports film starring Richard Lewis, a comedian people might know from Curb Enthusiasm. He's been on a lot of Curb episodes. He's hilarious. He was in this 1999 sports movie called Game Day about this washed-up college basketball coach who's an alcoholic played by Richard Lewis. This movie is very hard R-rated, involves group sex, involves this alcoholic, boozed-up coach going to, like, a strip club. It's very dark. There's extreme violence in it as well. Um, It's (laughs) a very interesting movie. It was made by an indie production company. But I remember watching it, I picked it up from Blockbuster, and my parents didn't really put many restrictions, if any, really, on what my brother and I could watch growing up. Which... People can make judgments whatever, but I was exposed to a lot of things, and one of them was this movie I fell in love with, Game Day. Anyway, the only way you can watch it now is basically by buying a used DVD. There's people on Amazon selling this used DVD. They're like, oh my god, this movie's an underrated gem, which I agree, it is an underrated gem. I mean, it has its flaws as well. So we were talking about this... And we are basically like, why is it that these movies that were fairly, in Cocoon's case, quite popular? Another one I started thinking about was Kevin Smith, who made the Clarks movies, made the Ben Affleck Matt Damon, Chris Rock, Alanis Morissette starring movie Dogma in the late 90s, early 2000s. That's nowhere to be seen. Dogma, really interesting, ambitious comedy movie. Again, has its flaws, but also kind of great, I think. So there's basically nowhere to watch it. We were talking about that, and then I was also thinking about this somewhat... It's not new, new anymore, but there's this website, and it's also an app called Just Watch. And if you go to justwatch.com or on the app, you can basically type in any movie... TV title and it will tell you where you can stream it. It's like using data from so many different streaming services including more niche ones like shutter, Shudder, S H U D D E R, that kind of Shudder, the horror mm-hmm. streaming service I mentioned, but also your Netflix, your Prime, your Disney Plus, your Hulu, but also way niche year ones, network streaming services, Showtime, whatever. So anyway, you can type in something and it will tell you where something is streaming or if it's not streaming, where you can digitally rent or buy it broken down by price. So it will actually tell you if you can rent something like a movie or show cheaper on Amazon Prime rather than Apple or something like that. So it's a really cool service. It's a service that like I definitely needed in my life like several years ago. But it's a great service. And you can type in things like Cocoon and Dogma and Game Day and see that essentially there's no way to access it except again by buying a used DVD and like people aren't putting these things out on new blu-rays or anything like that um and obviously so many people now have ditched dvd players blu-ray players physical media it was people know that this is a thing right but it was more about like how do you answer like why is this happening specifically and i love stories that are about the that are like general interest reader stories but outlining the minutiae of these big industry phenomena like this what led to this point where like this movie or show you love from the 90s is nowhere to be found, even though you and, like, quite a few other people loved it. And theoretically, it should be really easy to throw something on a streaming service, right? This content is available somewhere in some library, can be digitally transferred if it's not already digitized, can be thrown on a service. It'll fulfill a niche on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or whatever. So why isn't it there? So anyway, I reported that story for GQ.
0: So why isn't it there? Have people just not gotten <laughs> to all of it? Or is it something to do with the, the people on the rights don't want to give them up? Or what What was the answer?
1: I mean, it's a whole big mess, but it's rights issues mostly. And by rights issues, I mean mainly like a lot of murky contracts and a lot of unknowingness about who are the rights holders, where they are now, et cetera. So I used as my sort of central cases game day, but that was put out by an indie film production company in the 90s. The 90s was like a huge boom for indie production companies, and a lot of them no longer exist, right? So they made movies that came out at Sundance, were then somewhat popular or whatever. A lot of those companies no longer exist. The very, very popular indie movies have mostly made their way to streaming. But if you look, there's a film researcher I interviewed and he analyzed the top 100 box office movies of every year. And especially in the 90s, that's when you start to see these just huge gaps. And a lot of it is just uncertainty of rights. Production companies are no longer in business. It's unclear where the rights holder is. It's also like contracts are fuzzy. So one really interesting example that's always intrigued me is there has never been a complete digital issuing of Beavis and Butthead, the, of course, iconic MTV 90s show, mm-hmm. much beloved by me and others. They have issued it on DVD and I think Blu-ray and it exists in some form on streaming or has at least. I remember it used to be on Hulu, but it's never had a complete issuing because so much of that show depended on the final segment of each episode, which was Beavis and Butthead riffing on music videos. So MTV had the rights to air all of those music videos on Beavis and Butthead at that time, but they didn't have a home video license for those music videos, or at least for a lot of those music videos, and they still have never spent the money, and also just there's a lot of, like, legal wrangling you need to do to lock down the home video rights or the streaming rights for all of those different music videos, going to all of those labels... Or artists or what have you. And, you know, that's a widely pirated show in part for that reason. Because people want even the lower quality bootleg version just because it has all of that intact from the original show. It's a very important part of the show, right? So anyway, for whatever reason, even though it was a very popular show a lot of people still love it, it's never gotten that complete package. And you have other things like that, too. Music rights can be hard. Even if something had home video rights, it's not always clear from the people I spoke to. I spoke to people who work in distribution, whether it's like home video. I spoke to a home video editor who works on packaging for sort of DVD and Blu-ray materials, extras for movies that come out. And then I talked to someone who works in particularly theatrical distribution, but is also very insightful on how things get distributed in streaming and home video. And so something might have had home video license, but it's not clear what that license entails for streaming. If it's still valid, you know what I mean. So there's a lot of like fuzzy contracts, tracking people down. It's a lot of like pain. I talked to John August, a screenwriter who has championed this cause of figuring out how to get older films that were very popular on streaming. John August is a screenwriter who worked on Big Fish, the Tim Burton film. He worked on the new Aladdin live action film and is also well known for this movie Go in the '90s. So he oh, is champion. Yeah. I like that
0: movie, love
1: yeah with Katie Holmes, love go so yeah. He Timothy
0: this- Oliphant as the drug dealer, Ugh, yeah.
1: the shirtless Santa Claus hat wearing <laughs> drug dealer. Yeah. One of his one of his best roles, aside from Deadwood, I feel.
0: Yeah. Um, Family circus just waiting in the corner to suck or something oh like that. Oh my god, yeah,
1: <laughs> Yes. So anyway, he wrote that screenplay. I think he's like the sole screenwriter credit. He also, just plugging, John August also has his own podcast called Script Notes that's about screenwriting and sort of the ins and outs of that world. But he has championed this cause and is like, why can't we watch Cocoon? He actually tweeted out to Ron Howard, the director of Cocoon, about this. Ron Howard is someone who could definitely get things moving in the industry to make Cocoon in digital happen, a cocoon streaming option. Ron Howard never got back to him, even though I guess they've met. So that was one thing I reported out in the story. I also through my reporting discovered that certain movies that were popular around mid-century, for whatever reasons, through selling of different entities that were owned by studios to other companies. There's like two popular movies, actually 70s movies rather, Elaine May's movies The Heartbreak Kid and Sleuth, starring Lawrence Olivier and Michael Caine. Those are actually now through weird mergers, acquisitions, what what have you, selling of things through the years. The rights to those movies are now owned by a pharmaceutical company, a major pharmaceutical company, uh, Bristol Myers Squibb. So this drug (laughs) company owns these movies. They have no interest in really tending to this part of their business. Uh, It's not really their business. Their business is selling drugs. But they happen to own these titles because there was a point in the 70s, I guess, where companies who were not in the business of entertainment decided they were going to invest in entertainment. They own these movies, and they really have no interest in showing them, so they're not streaming anywhere. I talked to someone who works in programming for theaters on background, but I learned that it is possible to get these movies shown in theaters only if you are really diligent and pursue them, but Bristol-Myers' script has really no interest in them being seen and isn't going to go through the legwork of making them accessible on streaming. It doesn't seem any Time soon. So there's a lot of those kinds of weird issues. The other thing I was interested in not to go too long on this, but you know, it used to be that studios really wanted to get their titles out there, especially their really popular titles. They wanted them on Netflix, they wanted them on, you know, wh- wherever they could showcase them where people were at least subscribing or even just paying for them, like renting them or buying them on Amazon or what have you. Now you're in sort of an interesting new dynamic in Hollywood where the studios, the content creators, are now. In effect, massive distributors on streaming, especially now with Disney having its own Disney Plus service, where they have made it increasingly hard to see especially their most popular back titles, the original Lion King animated movie, etc. They have made it increasingly hard to see those anywhere else digitally even buying them they are increasingly scarce you can't see them easily streaming if at all some of them they've locked down on streaming entirely unless you pay for Disney+. Plus, So it used to be, again, that these studios, these content creators, the burden was kind of on them to make it possible to see these things, whether in theaters or in home video, or then in more recent years on streaming services or digital video services. Now you're reaching this new phase where Disney doesn't feel like it benefits them at all to get those things out there unless you subscribe to Disney+. And if you don't subscribe to Disney+, It'll be harder and harder to see their big titles anywhere digitally. So that was another thing I was interested in and something John August has talked about very bluntly as sort of something people should be concerned about just from a monopolization kind of. I mean, I don't know if you would call what Disney doing isn't a monopoly, but, you know, with them also buying 21st Century Fox and becoming a distribution platform in and of themselves, the sort of integration of all of it is something that might make certain consumers wary. And that is one of the things where you can actually call your local legislators support breaking up some of these businesses, making it harder to monopolize them in the ways that certain companies have. So that was one piece I was very proud to report out.
0: Yeah, wow, that's a hell of a story. Okay, so the next section is the lightning round. So it's going to be quicker questions. Pew, pew, that, pew. Do you feel ready? I th- I think I'm ready. Yeah, sure, I feel ready. First up, what is a must read publication that you look at almost every day?
1: Right now, it is 538, I guess, just because it's an uh, election year. This sort of combination of just like really deep modeling using vast poll data really smartly also with like really great commentary not just from of course like Nate silver who's very famous but also like claire malone one of their senior writers their political podcast is
0: great cool yeah no i've actually just started looking at them a lot in like the last week i guess exactly because of the election yeah and then what is a publication you read listen to or watch just for fun ah <laughs>
1: Just for fun? Does anyone listen or watch or read anything like journalism just for fun?
0: (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I, I, for example, would read about, like, say, sports for fun.
1: Okay. This is going to sound bonkers. But... Stay with me. So Slate has always been very good at podcasts and there's one podcast I listen to every week without fail. It is the Slate Political Gab Fest and yes it informs me of like the general contours of the political landscape whatever week, right? But I actually listen to it mostly for like the hosts. Like I just love them. I've been listening to them forever. I feel almost like their family which would probably creep them out because they don't know me. But David Plotz, John Dickerson, Emily Bazelon, none of whom actually work at Slate anymore, but they're all still hosting this podcast they've hosted for years, and they're all clearly friends and, like, just have this amazing rapport, and so I love just listening to Slate Political Gab Fest. Every week they do, like, the cocktail chatter at the end of the podcast, and they all just, like, shout out the most interesting things, just, like, about novels or about weird court cases, whatever it is. Like, I get education from it, but I also just, like, have so much fun being with them every week. I get all my political stuff from podcasts. I guess because I find it too annoying to read all of that, but...
0: Interesting. Is there any particular subject matter that you read into specifically that isn't related to your job?
1: Yes, it's probably the MLS stuff. I've never been a big... S- Sports fan. But when I lived in New York, I became indoctrinated into soccer. An ex-boyfriend of mine started taking me, he's like a diehard supporter of NYCFC. So I started going to NYCFC games and then realized other people I knew were really into NYCFC, loved going to the games, became just like really interested in MLS. It's like one of those sports that's so fun to watch, but like in the US, it's not super popular, which would seem like a downside, but Actually, the tickets are much cheaper than going to, like, an in-demand NBA game or NFL game or what have you. Loved going to those games. I'm now an LAFC fan, and I will read, like, little reports or, like, stats and analysis about previews of games, whether it's on Bleacher Report or whatever, like, about MLS teams and their prospects and games and things like that. And when the playoffs were going on, I was... Reading some of the 538 stuff
0: too. So, yeah,
1: that probably. I've never written about sports or soccer, but I like reading some of that stuff.
0: Is Twitter important to you?
1: Uh, Yes, Twitter is important to me because I work in media and I think anyone who works in media needs to take Twitter seriously. But I also think Twitter can sometimes be even a detriment in my own job and even when I was an editor because Twitter does not represent most of the country of the world right like it actually for its outsized representation in media and like celebrities including the u.s president being on all the time it's actually it's it doesn't represent most people it's not actually even fractionally like in any serious way as popular as something like facebook or Instagram. So for that reason, I think it can be kind of an echo chamber. It's all people who work in media or the media industry or in the celebrity industrial complex. So I think it can be a detriment and just like can get into your little echo chamber where everyone's focusing the same thing. Where most Americans or most people in Earth <laughs> on Earth are not actually <laughs> that interested in whatever the firestorm is on Twitter. But yes, it's it's a great way also to tap into breaking, breaking, breaking news often breaking headlines i mean you know this you'll see them flying through your tweet deck you know or your twitter feed rather before a publication actually gets around to publishing a full story
0: yeah that's definitely true and then if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career who would it be this is so cliche
1: i also feel like outs me as like a gay male journalist cliche but definitely (laughs) definitely joan didion
0: okay okay I guess I'm not as familiar with her journalistic work because she was also she also wrote books right? she wrote fiction and she her and john dunn her
1: late husband wrote screenplays they had like a whole hollywood era which i think is also so fabulous i mean she's one of those people who joan didion who's i think she's most well known for her journalistic work which also bleeds into personal essay work she has famously inspired a lot of people to write in a more confessional mode even though she wasn't actually really all that confessional. Her personal essays tended to leave out more than they put in. And she always used personal essays to sort of think about larger cultural and political issues. But, you know, she's known for, like, her essay books, like Slouching Towards Bethlehem and The White Album, published in, like, the late 60s, early 70s, that... She found her way into this kind of interesting rift in American culture, particularly in California and I've always just been drawn to her because I often find like very literary journalism very pretentious she's a literary journalist who I think has managed to be accessible, also very stylish. Just kind of like, she's fabulous in her own right. I mean, she's always been very glamorous, and there's a certain kind of coolness about her. I don't mean just coolness in terms of like, oh, she's cool, but like, there's something about the way she writes and reports that is very matter-of-fact and very declarative, and her writing is actually very muscular, and it just kind of is, you read it and she makes you feel like, oh, this is the definitive way of seeing this subject. I've always thought she's brilliant. I, I don't think anyone can ever replicate her, though. People have tried so many times, obviously, she's quite old now, but she became very famous after her also-author husband died for the Year of Magical Thinking, which was a nonfiction book about her own grieving. But it's a book, again, in this like very Didion-esque way, like infused with so much reporting. She just reads a bunch of medical journals and just goes deep into the psychology and the literature around grieving, the sort of Emily Post manners around grieving and how we grieve today or how we refuse degree. It becomes a personal thing that ends up becoming this much more universal and even like political thing, which she
0: does like no one else. So I love that. Wow. And then what do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? Yikes. I think a lot
1: about my biggest passion is entertainment stuff. But I think a lot about sort of mass entertainment a lot of times mass entertainment that is ignored in media or at least ignored by quote-unquote serious media serious journalism so I'm really interested in things like horror movies and why it is that horror movies are actually among the most stable genres in terms of creating great return on investment they're cheap to make They have a devoted following. People go see them even in theaters still. A lot of people do, and they make big profits because of that. And I'm interested in thinking about taking those things seriously and understanding why they're popular, how they work, how they sometimes don't work, How they work, even sometimes among people who aren't necessarily drawn to those things. I mean, the same thing could be seen in music, you know, when you have crossover acts. You know, why is it that we haven't had any hip-hop Grammy album of the year winners except for Lauryn Hill and Outkast? And understanding what was it about that moment, which actually came years before, that crossed over in a way that somehow the Grammys is not recognizing that kind of music in the same way. Understanding all those things which people take for granted, they're like, oh yeah, like that's a fun pop song or that's a trashy horror movie or whatever. But understanding how those things work or don't work. And how they're significant in their business impact, but also how they accrue like wider cultural significance. All of that stuff is like really interesting to me.
0: Yeah, it's not just the entertainment significance, but it has all these other aspects to it and is in many ways more pervasive and important and influential than quote unquote serious stuff
1: any like entertainment journalist will tell you but there's a lot of words assigned to things because they're like they're hot and they might be like an oscar contender and they might be this they might be that which is at the expense of covering things that are actually incredibly popular or have this weird cult following that are still like very significant in lots of ways
0: and what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self
1: I wish I could travel back to my late college and early 20s and tell myself that the thing that you thought you needed to be is just one very small part of who you are. And, like, you should just explore all versions of yourself, including outside of your career. Like, your career is not everything. It doesn't define you. Obviously, a lot of people in journalism get consumed by their career and make it, like, the foundation of their identity, which can be healthy or unhealthy. But, you know, explore things other than that. Go have fun going watching
0: soccer games. And reading up on stats about that, even though you'll do nothing with it in your career. Yeah, no, I get what you mean. and I feel like there were a lot of people in our sphere coming out of college that were very much in the journalism as identity mode. I think most of us have acquitted ourselves of it fairly well. I think um, that's
1: true. I mean, I think you have to at some point because... Otherwise, you'll be 40 and you'll just be like, what is my fucking life?
0: Right. I mean, there are certain professions. It's probably not just journalism, but just the fact that there's so many representations of it in culture that it becomes very easy to...
1: Well, I've noticed yeah. since living in L.A., I mean, I don't think of Brian as really being like this, but I, I, I just, I overhear it, I see it, it's just people speak in Hollywood, and even when they're just on the fringes of Hollywood, and it seems to consume their whole identity, and it's a little bizarre and like sometimes kind of like pathetic not to put too fine a point on it but I just mean like there's a way in which I think especially certain industries where you feel like you need to have it be all-consuming just to succeed at it which I think journalism can be one of those that can only last for so long I think at least for me personally and for a lot of people I know and you need to find a way out of that and I think part of that is like I wish you could tell my younger self dude just do your work be serious about it but also yeah explore other things maybe date more than you you are maybe go enjoy soccer games that you like whatever it is read a fucking crime novel that has nothing to do with your job because crime novels are awesome
0: yeah for tight wound journalists a good piece of advice i know right i mean
1: Um, don't you feel like that's so much more important now that you're like older Not that we're like old or
0: anything. I'm just saying like. Definitely. Sometimes I wonder like, uh, should I be working all the time? Should I be one of those people who, no, no, I shouldn't be like. And then. I just just remember like,
1: I would have mornings where I just woke up and I'm like, what am I doing today that's not, about my job or related to my job. And I just felt more and more, there was really nothing. And, you know, also a lot of my friends were in the same industry as me in New York. And I was like, do I like this life? Like, do I like how I'm living every day? And uh, I just, I I decided I wanted to make some shifts, you know?
0: Yeah. What is one thing most people don't know about you? That I'm left-handed. Oh yeah, I didn't know that about you. So
1: are Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, and I'll take it.
0: Huh. I trust them less now. I don't know why.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, they each have their own special baggage as well. But (laughs) That's true. Um, Yeah, I'm left-handed. And so is my dad. And he actually was, as a young kid, they tried it in school, because this was apparently how you dealt with left-handed kids. They tried to train him to write with his right hand, but it never took. So anyway, I'm all about my left-handed brothers.
0: And then, yeah, what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? This is going to
1: be another cliche, but I thought Spotlight was just beautiful especially just as a depiction of something that is very hard to dramatize on screen, I think, which is the slow, gradual accumulation of information that works into the story that, I mean, I've never worked on a story anywhere near that scale and can only imagine, but any journalist can relate to this slow, but also very dramatic and intense accumulation of reporting insights, information that builds, that snowballs into this much bigger thing that you realize has other consequences and also just I thought they showed a lot of respect to the actual journalistic process in the movie while also weirdly making it so tense and like the whole cast is incredible. It's a deeply moving movie that also really gives you a great insight into what reporters who are on the sort of trenches of really vital stories like that actually do like day in and day out not just when they get the big deep throat scoop or whatever but what they actually do day to day
0: and then qualifications aside if you couldn't be a journalist what job would you do
1: um probably something in filmmaking probably very badly (laughs) but i mean my first love is movies i've loved movies since i was like a little kid i'd like scream at my dad to take me to the movie theater and take me to movies i probably shouldn't have seen at that age but i just love everything about movies
0: So, like, yeah, director.
1: Sure, director, screenwriter, art, like production design, (laughs) even though I'm not crafty or designy,
0: really. Cool. So, yeah, that's all the questions. Yay! So, thanks a lot for, again, doing this. Thanks for putting
1: up with me for multiple hours.
0: That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Paul Schroed, a freelance journalist in Los Angeles. Before you tune out, because I know I say virtually the same thing in every outro, here's something to consider. The last review that someone left on Apple Podcasts was on November 8th last year, and it is by someone with the username Tom from MySpace, under the title, quote, I'm into it, unquote, and it reads as follows. Oh, you love feedback so much. I once fell down an entire flight of stairs having been overserved. This is better. Five stars. Thank you to Tom from MySpace, but it's been four months since then, and it's time someone else take over the top review slot. Please, if you like the show, write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a five-star rating. I'll post links to some of Paul's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, April 5th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.